and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. It is a joy to be here. I see a wonderful mixture of people that have contributed so much to my life and have been such an encouragement, and all the wonderful new people that God has brought in. And I had a chance to meet some of the men. It was a delight to be with them and, and serve them and serve the Lord. And so now we seek to serve you in this capacity. We're in Ephesians 3, as Kevin read. As you heard from Ephesians 3, that's a long text. That would take many, many weeks of sermons to cover adequately. So we're going to take, for the sake of time, only verses 9 through 12. However, because these verses land in the midst, not just of what you heard as a context, but really in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, we need to give just a little bit of context so we can understand it. The word mystery, which I'm sure you heard, read, is an important one in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Just before our text that we're going to be preaching in 3.6, as well as back in chapter 1, mystery is named. Well, a mystery in the New Testament, many of you know this, is not something perplexing, nor is it something that Agatha Christie might have authored. A mystery is the truth about something related to God's plans for his people, mostly. And though this truth was established Long ago, in ages past, it's a truth that he has not made known, that had remained hidden until he revealed it through the apostles. The amazing thing about these mysteries is that even though they had been kept secret by God for all of these ages and millennia, they're always about something very important. For instance, the mystery of marriage, that it was given by God for the purpose of modeling the gospel, which is, in our mind, the central truth about marriage, God waited 4,000 years to reveal that after he had begun marriage, obviously, in the garden. The mystery that's revealed here in Ephesians is an absolutely enormous development in the history of God's salvation, and yet God sovereignly chooses to wait to reveal it until Paul did here as an apostle to the Gentiles. The mystery is, as Kevin read back in verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now that may not sound like all that great a thing today, because we've been 2,000 years, Jews and Gentiles have been together in the church, old news, but in salvation history terms, this was a huge development. The Gentiles, of course, are all non-Jewish ethnic people. And he says, they're now fellow heirs with the Jews. That's the content of the mystery. But not only have the Gentiles become fellow heirs, they've been united with the Jews as members of the same spiritual body, the church. The believing Gentiles, these Johnny-come-latelys on the stage of salvation history, have not only been made by God the spiritual equals of Jewish followers of Jesus, he's placed them in this profound spiritual union together. The union of Jews and Gentiles is 
established when anyone savingly trusts in Jesus. Again, may not seem like much to us, but think just for a minute about what this meant. You've got the Jewish people beginning in Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus, and we read through the history of the development of the Jewish race, and of course, they get the law, and they get the prophets, and they get the temple, and they get all of this preparation to prepare this people for the Messiah. 2,000 years in development, and yet the Gentiles get all of it up front, everything in one moment. I mean, it's a little bit like if you're a high school basketball player, you're a senior on the team, and of course, it's tryout day. And most of the people that you're trying out with, you've known for a long time. You've played with them on and off in various leagues for six or seven years, maybe. And so you're kind of surveying who's, who's there trying out. And this nerdy, bookish kid who's been around for a while but has never had any interest in basketball, as far as you know, you've never, he's never touched a basketball. He's five foot nine and 135 pounds dripping wet. And he shows up for the tryout. And they hand him the basketball. And he is at that moment as good as anybody else on the team. It's a miracle. Okay, that is small potatoes compared to what happened with the Jews and the Gentiles. So let's just read again verses 8 through 13. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Our text that we're going to be looking at today divides into three sections. Verse 9 is Paul's mission to reveal God's hidden mystery as apostle to the Gentiles. Verses 10 and 11 reveal the purpose of Paul's mission. And verses 12 and 13 discuss two consequences for the church of God's work through Paul. Paul's mission is really two-pronged, one of which we're not going to look at today. It would take two or three weeks to exposit this miracle. We're not going to look at the prong of his mission, which is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here in verse 9, we see the second half of Paul's mission as apostle to the Gentiles. Paul says that he has also been sent to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Well, to bring to light obviously means to bring something that has been kept in the dark out in the open so everyone can see it. This plan that has been kept hidden by the sovereign purposes of God for ages now is revealed, this mystery. But what does the plan of the mystery mean? Well, the word translated plan literally means administration or strategy. So we know from what we read earlier in verse 6 that it was Paul's unique privilege and responsibility through this revelation that Jesus had given to him to communicate to the Gentiles God's previously hidden strategy in bringing the Jews and Gentiles together into one united people. 
This mystery had been hidden for ages. We don't know how long that is. We just know it's a very long time. But with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel going out to the Gentiles, Paul says, now is the preordained time in God's sovereign purposes for the availing of this mystery, spiritual union of Jews and Jesus, Jews and Gentiles into one people. Paul ends verse 9 by stating that God is the one who created all things. Now, when a reference to something God has done, like creation, is there, that's not arbitrary. That's not just thrown in for good measure. There's a reason. Paul's emphasizing here the absolutely epic scale of this unifying work between Jew and Gentile. Remember, we've seen that this uniting of Jew and Gentile was far more than simply reconciling two ethnic groups of people. There are plenty of Old Testament references and prophecies that predict that one day the Jews and Gentiles will worship together on Mount Zion. This was not news. That part of it was not news. What's news is what was back in chapter 2, which is amazing. The amazing revelation here that Christ has created in himself one new man in place of the two. Now that may not sound all that impressive, but that's an absolutely astonishing statement because Paul is saying that Christ had created a new man or a new humanity or a new human race. He's created a new human race comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles. And one reason this is so amazing is that Paul, by mentioning God who created all things, he's implying that God's creation of this new humanity, Jew and Gentile, is absolutely to be compared with God's initial creation back in Genesis 1, humanity under Adam. Now, as the God who created all things, he's created a new human race, not with Adam as its head, but with Christ as its head. In verse 10, Paul reveals the purpose of his mission to the Gentiles, and it is not one that could easily be predicted. God's purpose in revealing this Jew-Gentile union with the church, this mystery is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, if that sounds like a big deal, it's because it is a big deal. When Paul reveals that God through his church makes known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, he's revealing a truth that most of us probably don't think much about, especially in the West. And that is, a well-established biblical truth that there exists, in addition to this earthly reality, a heavenly reality where supernatural angelic beings dwell and are active and their activity can have profound effects to what happens here on earth. The Bible, Old and New Testament, teach this cosmic or this extraterrestrial element of God's creation. For us, may not feel all that comfortable with it. A little bit like the Twilight Zone or the X-Files here, but this is, this is part of God's Word. This element of God's creation, these angelic rulers and authorities in the heavenly places also appear in Ephesians chapter 6 in a text we know very well. Verse 12, 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now these spiritual powers here in chapter 3 probably refers to both the good angelic beings, but also these bad demonic angels who cohabitate in the eternal heavenly realms. A specific example of how these heavenly angelic beings or powers relate to what is going on here on earth is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 10. There, God temporarily peels back this unseen heavenly veil, and he allows us to peer into this invisible spiritual world. This is fascinating, this passage. It's helpful to us because it reveals to us the kinds of angelic activities that occur there and what impact they can have, particularly on God's people on earth. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays this powerful prayer of repentance. He knows that the 70-year exile is about over, and he prays this powerful prayer of repentance, pleading with God for forgiveness, but he's also praying, God, would you end this exile? And so he's praying a prayer about the future of God's people. And of course, they had been exiled to Babylon, but now they're under Persian rule, because Persia's taken over Babylon. And in response to that single prayer, the angelic heavenly realm lights up with activity, and the author reveals what transpires in the heavenlies. So three weeks after Daniel prays this prayer, Daniel sees a vision of this glorious messenger angel who comes to him and tells him that he had come to Daniel in response to his prayer. That's enough to get you excited about prayer, isn't it? But it says in verse 13, this is the messenger speaking, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. In other words, in response to Daniel's prayer, the angel was sent from the heavenly realms to earth to announce to Daniel God's plan for the future of Israel in response to his prayer. But this good angel in the heavenlies is intercepted by an evil angel who was revealed as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And so this dark angel fights against the messenger and detains him from completing his mission for 21 days until Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the rulers of the good angels, liberates the messenger and allows him to come to Daniel. So it's a picture of angelic conflict and the unseen heavenly realm that is related to and powerfully impacts God's work on earth. It's an amazing text. Well, with that as background, what Paul is saying here in verse 10 is that it is for the enlightenment and the astonishment of these kinds of heavenly rulers and authorities that God puts on display his manifold wisdom as they watch what is going on here on earth. 1 Corinthians 11 says angels watch our public worship services. So they're there. We don't see them. 
Now, by manifold wisdom that they're watching here on earth, Paul means the richly diverse nature of God's wisdom. It's manifold. It's all over the place. It's displayed across thousands of different contexts and fronts. And as we saw in Daniel chapter 10, these angels, with God in absolute control of all of them, they're obviously interested and actively involved in helping shape the course of human history in some way. Again, we only get a piece of this. Paul is saying that the working out of this mystery, the spiritual union of Jews and Gentiles, is for the benefit and the amazement of these watching angelic rulers. God seeks to be glorified, not only on earth, but also before these heavenly rulers and authorities. And Paul reveals here that he is glorified as he displays his manifold wisdom on earth. But Paul also reveals that the specific theater, the stage, if you will, where God on earth displays his manifold wisdom to these angelic creatures is the church of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's church where God reveals to them the glory of his manifold wisdom. Paul is saying that the union of Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity, God's creation of this new multi-ethnic human race, that is what displays the manifold wisdom of God to these angelic beings. The question is, that I hope you're thinking about, what is it about the joining of Jews and Gentiles into the church that would display the wisdom of God in such a way that the angelic powers would actually sit up and be amazed? Well, one short answer, broad answer, is that Satan was obviously very much interested in the initial creation of humanity, these image bearers of God on earth, this race that he would attempt to conquer and defile, and would therefore be interested in his new human race as well. For the good angels, they're just watching God because they love God so much, they don't care what he does, they're just looking for God. But as it relates to the original human race under Adam, let's face it, under God's providence, Satan has had a lot of success in much of salvation history, dividing Adam and his race. Now we can see much more clearly how the union of believing Jews and Gentiles in Christ into the church displays God's wisdom in the ages past when we see it in the larger context of the unfolding of his plan over the ages. So Paul tells us back in chapter 1 that the plan actually began, if you will, when God in love predestined us, Jews and Gentiles, for adoption as sons of God through Jesus Christ. That's where God's plan or strategy began in eternity past. But the next stage of his redemptive plan for humanity, of course, is the creation of humanity. Adam was the beginning. He was the head of the human race of people who it was supposed would be this unified, single race bearing God's image, existing for his glory as one people under Adam. But in the plan of God, Adam fell and this glorious, united race of people quickly divided. Adam and Eve divided. Cain and Abel divided, and it was only worse from there. It became clear that humanity under Adam was a bust as a unified people. So we know that after the flood, God starts over again with Noah 
But sin also divided Noah's family. And this newly reconstituted human race after the flood is also a bust. Adam failed as the first head. Noah failed as his successor. Noah's descendants did reunite for one brief moment in Genesis chapter 11, but for the wicked purpose of building a tower so that they could elevate themselves to God's level, or so they thought. And God shattered that blasphemous unity by assigning them different languages. But he began a new chapter. He formed another never-before-seen race of people, the Jews. This could be another humanity with God as their king. His chosen people acting as priests to the rest of the world. That was the revealed intention. But it became clear that the idolatrous Jews also failed in this new humanity when they ended up looking like all the other pagan nations as they worshipped all these satanic gods. They completely failed and God was forced to judge them and exile them. At this point, if you're Satan and you've been working for these millennia to prevent the creation of a new, united, God-glorifying humanity, you're batting a thousand from a human level. Up to this point, Adam, Noah, and Israel are all failures. But in the fullness of time, God sent his promised seed, seed of Abraham, And Jesus of Nazareth is born. He lived a perfect life as the promised Messiah. He died on a cross. And in so doing, he defeated Satan and all of his minions. And with his victory, Jesus became the new head of a new humanity. And back in Matthew 16, Jesus had put Satan on notice about this new humanity that he would create. And so he says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So after Jesus defeats Satan at Calvary, the risen triumphant Christ tells the disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. Gentiles, if you will. Soon after that Pentecost comes, the church is brought into being by the Spirit of God. Believers are given new hearts. God's law is written on them. But initially, the church is made up of only Jewish people. But God's hidden strategy, this mystery, decisively unfolds in Acts chapter 10. Peter, the rock, in obedience to God, opens the gospel to the Gentiles, and God pours out his Spirit on the Gentiles. And the presence of the Spirit of God meant that the Gentiles are spiritually in exactly the same place with God as the Jewish believers are in Jesus. There's no difference between a Spirit-indwelt Jew and a Spirit-indwelt Gentile. And Paul explicitly reveals this here in Ephesians chapter 3. That is the church. 
The church is the genuine, in eternity past, plan for new humanity that was always intended to be the fulfillment of God's strategy with his son Jesus as the exalted head of this multi-ethnic new human race that has been kept hidden for ages past. And it's the blood of Jesus that God has united these disparate races. They both share the exact same promise, the exact same blessings, and through the Holy Spirit they are absolutely equal before God. That's amazing. And even though the Gentiles have none of the theological preparation of the Jews, the gospel, mostly through Paul, the gospel was running rampant through the Gentiles. The church was multiplying, and there were now these local churches that had Jews and Gentiles in them, in union in Christ That's at least part of why Paul could say triumphantly in verse 11 of this display of God's wisdom in the heavenlies, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God doesn't make up history as he goes along. Every detail is pre-planned and every predestined believer, Jew and Gentile of any ethnicity, will be saved and made part of his glorious spiritual union within the new humanity no exceptions. Job 42, 2, Job says to God, I know that, or God says to Job, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So all of God's eternal purposes, including this one of creating a new humanity in Christ, are invulnerable to being thwarted or frustrated. Everything from eternity past will be worked out precisely as God intended, and that includes the manifold wisdom of God as the heavenly beings look in amazement. Beginning in verse 12, Paul shifts gears. He's been revealing what God has done through this union of Jew and Gentile and the wisdom that that union communicates to the angelic rulers. But now he leaves the otherworldly cosmic elements behind and he moved into some very practical consequences that this union in Christ has for believers. In these first two verses, Paul reveals the consequences for the work of Christ's church. Now this union, according to verse 12, is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12 continues, in whom, Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So this unifying work of joining Jews and Gentiles in the church had profound and practical consequences for all believers. And one of those consequences is that believers will be able to stand before the Lord and creator of the universe in boldness and access with confidence. The question is, how? How does this boldness and confidence, which sounds very good to all of us, relate to Jews and Gentiles being one in Christ? Paul here makes the connection by these two little words in the English, in whom. The boldness is rooted in our union with Christ and our mutual union with Christ with all of other God's people, Jew and Gentile. We are one in Christ. Here's how this works. (laughs) If a person is in Christ, is a believer, then they are literally joined to Jesus so that spiritually, where Jesus is, they are. That profoundly impacts our relationship with God as it relates to so many things, including 
boldness and access to him. Our union with Christ means that the privilege that Jesus enjoys as the Son of God, or at least many of them, apart from his divinity, those privileges the adopted sons of God also enjoy. The union with Christ will blow your mind. If, if you're not thinking about it, you need to think about that. So, this gives unfathomable boldness and access with confidence to believers in Jesus because this means that the only way a believer in union with Christ could ever hear from God, I reject you, or I'm really tired of you and your many failures, or you need to just get away. The only way that he could ever say that to a believer is if he said it first to Jesus. And Jesus ain't going nowhere. <laughs> because we're one with him. Okay, that's boldness. <laughs> that's confidence, right? Don't you think? And Jesus is at the highest point of favor with the Father. And that is precisely where we are as well. The point is because Jesus has perfect confidence and boldness to stand before the Father, those who are in union with Jesus enjoy that same exact boldness with access, with confidence that Jesus enjoys. So if you've had a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or whatever, and you are feeling like confidence before God is a pipe dream that has vanished in the fog. You must spend time remembering your union with Christ and the boldness and the confidence that that gives you before him as you relate to him as your heavenly father. Even in your worst moment, and that's bad. It's like my mind, that's bad. In your worst moment as a believer, in union with Christ, you enjoy the same boldness before God as his perfect son. Do we believe that? That's not just a box we check off on our salvation doctrine. That's the gospel. Now let's close with two very quick and broad points of application that I think are very encouraging. First, God is not only a personal God relating to believers on earth. He is a cosmic God who glorifies himself before a heavenly audience. This text with this cosmic element of God using the church as his stage to communicate something of his glory to the angelic rulers, it reminds us of something that's very important for us never to forget about God, and that is even though we do know very little about this, there does exist in the heavenly realms elements of God's creation that are nonetheless very important to God and his plans. God is not only in control of the earthly realities, but the heavenly ones as well. We don't know what God is doing all there in the obscene heavenly realms right now, but we know one thing from this text in Ephesians and Daniel chapter 10, that is, God is sovereignly active in that realm also, and what he does in that cosmic realm that's unseen, it affects us in some way. In other words, God is far bigger, has many more dimensions to him than most of us generally think about. And we know almost nothing about a lot of it. 
because even the Bible doesn't have much to say about them. There are doubtless many more mysteries of God yet to be revealed to God's people. It's easy for us to be cocooned in our own little world where we're concerned about God working in my life and my family and my future and so on. It's incredibly easy to forget that God is totally, intimately, comprehensively active, not only in my life, but in the lives of the other eight billion people on this planet all the time. Eight billion people to be sovereign over, knowing every thought, controlling even the smallest detail of every single one of their lives, yet even with how inconceivably immense, infinitely immense God must be to do all of that in the earthly realm of humanity, it's not enough responsibility for him to take on. He has the heavenly realms too. No, he's saying sovereign over the heavenly realms is for his glory, as we saw in Acts chapter 10. And it's teeming with activity that we know very little about. This cosmic element of God is not one we think about But in order for us to worship and love God appropriately, it needs to be part of our understanding of who he is. He's so much bigger. He's active in realms we don't even know about beyond this time-space reality here we walk in. Second, the church of Jesus Christ is at the center of both God's earthly and heavenly purposes, and that is a main source of his glory. It's so easy for us to look at the church of Jesus Christ through earthly eyes. When we look at it from a human perspective, we see the problems and we see the difficult relationships and we feel the pain of the hurts that we've experienced through the church of all places and all peoples. We, we think about the agree- disagreements with the youth pastor. Who is he? But we have to see the church as God sees it. That needs to be a goal of ours. It's part of discipleship. To God, the church is absolutely central and essential to both his earthly and his heavenly plans and his glory. Again, know very little about all of that. These terrifying supernatural beings. But this much we do know. We know that it is his church that in some way brings together these two realms of God's creation. That's what he says here in Ephesians 3. That's what's there in Daniel chapter 10. Now, he could have done that in a thousand different ways. He could have written another book of the Bible which picked out his manifold wisdom for these angelic beings. He could have put it in code in the constellations to show his manifold wisdom of God so that the angels could see it and read it and understand it propositionally. He could have done this in any way he wanted to, but he chose the church. The church is his chosen vehicle through which he reveals to these heavenly rulers an important aspect of his manifold wisdom in the church. His church, with all the sinful and troubled and stubborn and insensitive people in it. Let me challenge you as we close. If we're to be biblically faithful as a people, we must adopt this stratospherically high understanding of the church revealed in Scripture. 
It's not an option. And when we do that, we will be far less inclined to engage in attitudes or behaviors that would in any way bring dishonor or harm to this sacred conveyor of revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. Having this cosmic perspective of the church can help us see the local church for what it is, the glorious and miraculous body of Christ through which God reveals himself even to the heavenly rulers who we can't see. Beyond that, another implication of our union with Christ is if we are in the church in union with Christ, then our attitude toward the church must be shaped by our attitude to Christ. This is why you have these remarkable texts like 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Proof, this is amazing, proof that you are born again which means proof that you are united with Christ is that you love the brothers that you're united with and sisters. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. If he has not loved his brother who he hasn't seen, how can he not seen? How, excuse me, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In spite of all of what we might say or think, the scriptures are clear, and that is if you love Jesus, you really love Jesus as a redeemed person, you're going to love his church. Union. (laughs) Can't separate that. Can't separate your affections for Jesus and the church. And if we know people who say, I love Jesus, but you can have the church, we need to tell them that In love, they're horribly deceived. If we know people that are watching a church service on YouTube, not bothering to come to the services, but just kind of do it at a distance, we need to tell them that they're horribly deceived. And that the way that they're responding to the church is the way that they're responding to Jesus. May God give us the grace to see his church through his eyes for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, these are transcendent truths, and they're not truths that most of us think about all that time, but you put them in your word for a reason. And so, God, I pray that you would enable us to sit at times just in hushed awe of you as we contemplate who you are, your manifold wisdom, the fact that you reign over heaven and earth. And God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your bride. Help us, Father, to honor your bride because the bride is united to Jesus. Help us, Father, to love the brothers and sisters. Help us, Father, to honor you in all of these things. For Jesus' sake, amen.